1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in African-American History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Amanda Joyce Hall, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we're excited to talk to Marsha Chatlin about her new book, Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America. Dr. Chatlin is a professor of history and African-American studies at Georgetown University and a leading voice on the history of race, education, and food culture. Marsha, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I love being interviewed by brilliant people that I have met in other contexts, so this is a real treat.
1: Wow, thank you. Marsha, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself.
2: Yes, so I have been studying history and teaching it um, for the past 12 years. I did my PhD in American Civilization at Brown after completing... um, my major in journalism at the University of Missouri in Columbia. I'm a native of Chicago, and I've had a real um, privilege of not only writing history and teaching history, but doing history in public um, through various collaborations with museums, through doing podcasts and documentaries. And so I've really had the fortune to talk to a lot of audiences about why history matters.
1: And how did you come to write Franchise?
2: I am obsessed with fast food. I adore it. Um, I grew up eating a lot of it. I pay attention to the commercials. I find the ephemera fascinating. I'm obsessed with the supply chain that feeds um, Americans through fast food. Um, But I came to this particular book um, because my first project that I did in graduate school, which was my first book, Uh, Southside Girls Growing Up in the Great Migration was an exploration of Chicago's Great Migration period through the perspective of girls and young women. And I first got interested in the Great Migration when I was a high school student in Chicago. I had competed in a local television quiz bowl show on Black history, Mm -hmm. and we were given books to read, and I was given a book um, to read about the Great Migration. And it was my first interaction with really substantive Black history. And the prizes for this competition were paid for by a local chapter of the National Black McDonald's Operators Association. And this was a group of Black McDonald's franchise owners who were everywhere in the city, who underwrote a lot of different activities. Years later, when I was in graduate school, and I was thinking a lot about not just history, but how we come to know history. I always thought it was kind of weird that McDonald's was the portal for me to learn black history. And I thought more and more about how black owned McDonald's restaurants played such a prominent role in black communities. And so I just became really curious that what does that mean then for consumer relationships to fast food? And what does that say about capitalism that, um, some communities are so starved for resources that a fast food restaurant provides more than just food.
1: Mm. So let's get a little bit into the book. Um, You present a hidden history of an intertwined relationship between the struggle for civil rights and the growth and the development of the fast food industry. How did these two movements come to be connected Yeah. So one of the,
2: also one of the other polls for me for this book was a lot of the discourse around health and nutrition and what black people ate. And Mm -hmm. I was really, really aware of the ways that um, folks who were in the nutrition sector sector, or the food justice sector were really critical of fast food and fast food consumption. Um, Mm -hmm. But I always thought, well, there's got to be a story about why so many fast food restaurants are in so many communities of color. And I was just always really fascinated about it because there's nothing natural about any of our consumer desires or even Mm -hmm. our food tastes. Like They have to be cultivated somewhere. So all Mm -hmm. of this is to say, I was just really curious how this started. And what I discovered was that McDonald's became a fixture in Black communities after 1968, after Martin Luther King's assassination And this real concern on the part of white franchise owners doing business in black communities about whether they can be insulated from the next uprising and the big push for black-owned businesses in the late 1960s, these two ideas converged and they were able to co-opt and capitalize on the rhetoric of Martin Luther King's unfinished dream and the real sense that perhaps the fight for civil rights really needed to pivot towards economic development. And those two forces were so powerful, because they were Mm -hmm. sanctioned by people on a wide ideological spectrum. So you have anti-capitalist Black radicals who are saying, yeah, you should have black owned businesses. And you have mm-hmm. people on the right who have no desire to actually remedy any social ills and who are saying, okay, if black people have their own businesses, then they might be okay with the hyper segregation that they live with as long as some people are getting rich. And so it's deeply cynical. And at the same time, it was able to veil itself under the, the gravity and the um, idealism of the civil rights movement.
1: Right. And then um, one of the interesting things I noted was uh, the way that you look at uh, the Kerner Commission and how uh, the Kerner Commission determines that the cause of the uprisings across Black America is the absence of economic engines um, in Black communities. And so I'm wondering if you could um, speak to the... uh, to the ways that the context of the riot, the Holy Week uprisings, um, yeah, led to a kind of consensus, perhaps. Yeah, it's
2: this really like weird thing that happens that is so frustrating to me when I read this history. And I think has um, this way of thinking has been replicated over and over in moments in which we start to see um, – real unrest around deep-seated white supremacist policies and practices. So it goes a little something like this. Um, People are terrorized in their own communities. They're being terrorized by the police. Um, The quality of housing is abysmal. Their children are going to under-resourced schools. People can't find good jobs to pay a living wage. There's no access to good health care. People are really, really... um, to find any public spaces or resources, right? Mm -hmm. And then there's an uprising, either caused by police brutality, a major national Mm -hmm. event. And these commissions get together and they interview people and they actually ask good questions. Why are so so many people so angry? And people say, okay, the police are terrorizing us. We don't have decent housing. Our kids go to under-resourced schools. We don't have any public space. We don't have access to healthcare. And they also say the merchants in our communities are you know, abusive towards us. They overcharge. They don't hire our own people. Um, you know We don't have an opportunity to see our people as the leaders of the kind of economic part of our lives. So mm. these commissions skip over like the first six things that are really critical. And they're mm-hmm. like, business, huh? Black business. Mm-hmm. This is where we're going to put our energies. And I find this really fascinating because if you respond to the crisis of kind of racist violence by saying we will allow you more avenues to participate in the marketplace it's Mm -hmm. equivalent i've been using this new analogy it's like if i go to your house and i take a sandwich out of the refrigerator and you come and you're like oh i really wanted that sandwich and i'm like okay here's a pepsi you're like (laughs) thank you, but I wanted a sandwich. Like, what is this? Why is this Pepsi in front of me? And Mm. I think in similar ways, when people are talking about kind of structural violence and inequality, the idea that then you set up businesses so people at least feel good about buying black, it is such a con, but it's so effective because we know the importance of consumer citizenship and not only shaping some of the claims of the mid-century civil rights movement. But, I mean, nothing makes you feel more incorporated into the body politic of the United States than spending money, right? Voting mm-hmm. and spending money become these two things. Mm-hmm. And you're like, okay, and I would like to be able to have a long life. I'd also like to live in a place that isn't, you know, um, infested with rats or, and lead. I like my children to kind of be able to mm-hmm. have their intellectual curiosity nurtured. Like those things are important. But everyone's like, you know what we're going to do? We're going to open a store, and it's so effective mm-hmm. because it's sanctioned by so many different um, organizations,
1: right? And so, as franchise become a strategy to quell um, dissent and to quell, uh, yeah, like. A, Everything that you're talking about, responses to all of these problems, um, you say that McDonald's goes out and they look for translators. And I think translators is a useful term for thinking broadly about how capitalism and neoliberalism brings black and brown faces into the fold, incorporating them as agents of inequality, police brutality, U.S. imperialism, all, all of all of these things. So I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about that and then about who some of the black franchisees were. And I think one of the terms that you use to describe them is grassroots businessmen.
2: Yeah. So, you know, this story that I'm telling that starts many in many ways in 1968 is an old story in which black um, business people Um, are the unelected officials of black life. Um, Mm -hmm. They mediate a lot of tensions. They are engaged in brokerage politics. They are able to secure sometimes the safety of black folks um, by having this prominent position. And so what happens is these translators um, are trying to do two things. They're trying to consolidate as much power as this kind of structure will allow And they're also making sure that um, Black people are compliant in order for business to continue as usual. And so in similar ways, the people who were recruited as the first um, Black franchise owner, all men, um, you know, they were people who were from the neighborhood, people who could be trusted. Um, I talk a little bit about Herman Petty, the first Um, black franchise owner who was on the South side of Chicago. He was a known quantity, right? Because he has to navigate um, a landscape of local people um, who Mm -hmm. have to be invested in this idea of buying black as well, buying from him. He has to navigate the territory issues with um, the gangs in the neighborhood. He has to know who he can trust to um, staff his store. So he's got that That kind of thing. And one of the men who worked for McDonald's corporate who went on to recruit a lot of these black franchise owners, you know, he said he wanted people who were grassroots, meaning like people who could um, have enough social capital to make sure that people are falling in line in order for this business enterprise to work and to be considered respectable or acceptable enough for the folks at McDonald's corporate. And so Mm. in that early class, that early cohort of black men, franchise owners, um, some of them were college educated. Some of them had gone to the military to create opportunities for themselves. Um, They were very much um, sympathetic and um, very much ideologically aligned with civil rights thinking. Um, They were not radicals by any stretch of the imagination. And at the same time, like a lot of, I think, Black people in positions of power, they were sympathetic, again, to some of the ways that um, the radical imagination had inspired youth, right? Like they got it. And later, as the network of Black franchise owners opens up, you see celebrities getting involved, uh, former athletes. Um, people who have access to a lot of capital, but again, don't have a lot of access to the entryways to business because of racism and lending, because of a lack of um, networks, all of these things. So you see this this role of the Black business person at every turn of Black history having to do this, um, this uh, leadership role But it's not always leadership by popular um, democratic election. It's about positionality and it's about access to capital and access to finances.
1: Mm -hmm. And uh, the book is beautifully written. And one quote that I wanted to draw out um, that I think is important, you say this, um, but under capitalism, a company's influence is broad and deep, and the powerful companies synchronize their movements to the beat of social change without ever acknowledging that it can hear its sounds. How, how, should, we th- how should we understand um, what you're saying there in terms of sort of what happens in Cleveland? Um, with the boycott and kind of the operation, Operation Black Unity? Yeah. So Cleveland
2: presents a different way of thinking about this moment. So the first chapter of the book does an analysis of how race shapes the building of McDonald's uh, by thinking about the way that whiteness is one of the kind of critical assets that the McDonald's brothers can use in order to create this, this legacy of McDonald's. And it looks at the ways that you know, groups like the the Congress of Racial Equality and Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee are approaching McDonald's to desegregate in parts of the South. And the second chapter looks at these, um, you know, people who are invested in the ideology of black capitalism, and they want to own a franchise. But Cleveland presents another kind of way of thinking about how those two ideologies meet, one of protest and access and one of black capitalism, when there's a series of protests against white owned mcdonald's restaurants on the east side of cleveland because local black community members say well we should be the ones profiting from this we don't question the business model we question who gets to profit from it and if black dollars are being spent at local mcdonald's then they should be Mm -hmm. franchised by black people and maybe we can use this model of franchising to create innovative reinvestment tools for cleveland and so, as the kind of politics behind this idea unfolds in Cleveland, you start to see that black capitalism has a really kind of broad umbrella and folks under it. But then mm-hmm. when they have to kind of discuss well, how do we achieve it? What does it look like? How do we understand accountability? Who gets a piece of the pie? who doesn't? How do we make those determinations, you start to see just how empty the whole, idea is right because you you can't Mm -hmm. unify people under a system that is predicated on some type of inequality it like just doesn't work and people are trying to make sense of it because there's a real pragmatism is it in it right it's these things that folks are confronted with all the time do we let Mm -hmm. amazon into our community and have these jobs that aren't paying living wages and aren't giving access to health care everyone's a contractor. Or do we um, live with the fact that there may not be enough jobs in a short term because we're trying to build a strategy for the long term? and I'm incredibly sympathetic about the various ways that these communities let McDonald's in mm-hmm. um, because they don't know like they they're, they're, there's very little opportunity to imagine something else and so all of this is to say that Cleveland really does show the convergence of When black capitalism, you know, rubber meets the road with the protest tradition with, again, the rise of the black elected official who finds themselves in the middle of this. Carl Stokes was seeking reelection as mayor of Cleveland. Mm -hmm. And this McDonald's thing becomes his problem um, because of the multiple ways that um, black leadership has to operate and has to appease uh, various forces.
1: Right. And I think that um, you show the narrowing of of choices very well, um, especially with um, thinking about how the choice isn't whether or not, you know, we want a McDonald's or an Amazon. It's, you know, if there isn't one, there's no youth jobs program Mm -hmm. in in the city. Um, So how did um, activists – respond to the expansion of fast food in Black neighborhoods during the 1970s?
2: It's fascinating because I think we live in a moment, um, sometimes we can feel so discouraged, like we just have no power against the corporations and we have to either concede to their power or try to negotiate power. But I think that these snapshots in the 1970s are fascinating because people are making Different pronouncements about where power resides, and I love that. I love those stories. Mm-hmm. And so, um, chapter four looks at the Black Panther Party of uh, for self defense um, in Portland, and mm-hmm. their beef with McDonald's is, you know, what kind of presence are you going to be in our community? You're being used for the police to like detain people. Um, you're not contributing to the free breakfast program. You're not being um, present, and we are putting all our money in you. Like There is a level of accountability that's necessary. And in the Ogons neighborhood in Philadelphia, people are like, look, we're not even anti-fast food, but how much is too much? right? Do we need another fast food restaurant? And just because we are a working class and poor community, it doesn't mean that we don't have ideas about what should be in this community. And I found that really poignant as this neighbors association is Putting up a protest against a McDonald's being built, you know, they're Mm -hmm. saying things like, we would have preferred a library or a youth center or a mental health clinic. Like, they have a very clear vision of what the need is. And I think that one of the dangerous ideas that gets circulated so much, especially when people start to get into these narratives about voting and, you know, who turns out and why didn't you vote and all this stuff, it's this idea that if a person is, disenfranchised, whether it's from the voting system or from, um, you know, ideas of economic prosperity, that they don't also have a vision. It's it's so reductionist and so pejorative, but like they're saying, we are poor people who have a vision for our community. Um, the other strategy that is just, it's hilarious is the number of um, black celebrities who try to capitalize on ideas of black power and black solidarity to create their own mm-hmm. franchises And Mm -hmm. it's soon discovered they're just leasing their names. And so from James Brown to Muhammad Ali to Mahalia Jackson, they are saying, actually, buying Black is a good thing, but you really want to buy authentically Black. And to do that, you need to buy from us, not them. And again, we see these same types of dynamics emerge when we hear conversations about Black community building And it's so fixated on this idea of black wealth, but rarely Mm -hmm. is it very, um, provocative or critical of like wealth for whom and for what purposes and, you know, Mm -hmm. through which channels.
1: Right. And I think one of the important questions that you tee up is about, uh, Uh, well, which communities do franchisees actually belong to? Um, Because I think you have an example of of a franchisee being from like living in Bel Air, um, but uh, having a store in a different, in a different area. Um, So what is the, um, how did, what is the difference I guess between um, how community members experience a fast food franchise, even if it is if it's a black owned fast food franchise compared to mom and pop shops in the neighborhood. So
2: this is a really um this is really interesting to me because um when I was working on the book and I would do research on the book, um people would say to me, um, I would have like a white audience member say, I've never thought about who is a franchise owner of my local McDonald's. Like that does not register at all. And then um, black folks in the audience would be like, "Yeah, we knew the guy who was our franchise owner because it's not because that was the guy who was serving you your fries necessarily, but that was the person who would appear on local black radio stations like, you know, mm-hmm. WGCI in Chicago and tell people mm-hmm. to register to vote or to fill out their census. This was the person who was Um, At the local appearing on television at the local United Negro College Fund telethon weekend that Lou Rawls used to do when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And that person would have the giant check that they were giving to Fisk or to Alcorn Mm -hmm. State. Right. This person was a presence. And that is important because. Because that presence um, is necessary in black communities, because this business is filling so many gaps that the state has just um, conceded mm-hmm. because they, mm-hmm. they do not invest in black communities. Um, then the person starts to seem more like a mom and pop owner than they actually are. The franchise takes on some of the characteristics of proximity of the mom and pop, but the fundamental mm-hmm. difference between the mom and pop and the franchise is that if they're black owned, they're both being squeezed because of the, um, You know, racism in bank lending because of racism in how uh, neighborhoods are determined high risk or low risk and their ability to get, you know, good insurance rates or not so good insurance rates, security costs that then are higher in some parts of the neighborhood. You know, they're both kind of contending with those forces, but the Mm -hmm. mom and pop's precarity is, you know, a thousand times higher than that franchise owner's precarity. But don't get it twisted that black franchise owner who may be very wealthy is also more precarious than his white or her white counterpart. And so you start to see Mm -hmm. this way where um, people are conflicted about protest against McDonald's corporate and still have a desire to protect black franchise owners when they're engaged in these conflicts about opportunity within McDonald's franchising. And I talk about that um, in the fifth chapter of the book of that person you mentioned, he lives in Bel Air, all of his restaurants are in South Los Angeles. He says he wants to move into um, wider parts of the city and McDonald says, well, don't you want to do business in your community? And he's like, yo, I live in, I'm a millionaire. Uh, (laughs) You know, that is my community. And it really shows the ways that um, even that systems that create a lot of black wealth and create Mm -hmm. black elites also depend on a very narrow um, perception of, of where black presence is important and where black absence is okay.
1: Mm. Yes. I wonder if we can go to Atlanta um, and, uh, can you tell us a little bit about what civil rights leaders learned from their experiences with franchising?
2: Well, Atlanta is like, Mm -hmm. I feel like after Chicago, Atlanta is also the hub of a lot of this because you have the emergence of the fantasy of the new South of the incredible opening of doors um, for black people, um, you know, from the seventies to the 1980s. And, one really strong example of this is the number of people who are alumni of mm-hmm. the civil rights struggle who pivot into fast food franchising. Um, Devin mm-hmm. Fergus's book about um, about uh, Black power and liberalism in North Carolina, um, he makes this point about you know people like Bobby Rush going from Black Panthers yeah. to um, an insurance claims adjuster <laughs> and these ideas of risk. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think it is um, consistent, even if it seems surprising, that people like Julian Bond enter fast food franchising. He starts a partnership with a man named Hank Thomas, who became very famous as being one of the largest um, McDonald's franchisees in the South Um, and a white comrade who is a local dentist the three of them come together to franchise Dairy Queens and Wishbone Chicken restaurants. And it becomes a source of a lot of conflict and tension because people are wondering in the areas that they're operating these businesses, if it's truly a black business because they have a white counterpart. But that critique is interesting to me because The idea of a truly Black-owned business, if we go all the way to the financing it, the building of it, the supply chain, is an impossibility um, during this time. It's an impossibility kind of today. But all of this is to say that just having the veneer of Black ownership isn't enough. There's these critical questions that are being asked of these partnerships. But that that maybe is the next book, um, the kind of pipelining of you know where do people who are involved in freedom rides and the sit-in movements where they land in the 70s and 80s because I think that uh, there's been a lot of attention maybe because it feels like um you know really uh, ironic even though sometimes it's not of people who are in the movement who become these conservatives like David Horowitz or people mm-hmm. who have kind of a dim view of their participation like James Meredith but I think the fact that movement leadership funnels its way into the black elite of a certain kind of black elite is something that I think could use a very thoughtful um, look at Um, and looking Mm -hmm. at the ways that the franchise industry particularly is a place where these people um, kind of find a way to use those values and ideas of the movement
0: today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: Right. Well, let's get into that. Black America bought to you, brought to you by is one of my favorite chapters in this book. Um, what was the cultural work or cultural strategy of fast food franchisees and the broader industry during the 1970s and 80s?
2: Oh my gosh, they were so good at it. Um, So if you like the internet as much as I do, you sometimes uh, find yourself um, looking at uh, people posting or forwarding old, um, oh God, what what am I looking um, at? I want to edit this out. I just had a brain through. It's okay. um, People pass along uh, links to old McDonald's ads from the 70s and 80s or the like black... (laughs) Print ads and you're like oh my god this is so racist because it says stuff like you come to McDonald's you don't have to tip and there's a lot of like missing g's it's just it's it's just cringy right Mm -hmm. um and so (laughs) (laughs) I cringe as well and at the same time I I get it to the extent that um McDonald's was a pioneer um for lack of a better word Um, trailblazer, again, for lack of a better word, in this idea that you do a kind of direct discourse with black consumers that is supposed to make them feel very much grounded and rooted in place. And what I mean by that is there had been targeted advertising towards um, black consumers, you know, long before McDonald's got into this game. And the Great Migration actually helped sharpen black market research. But McDonald's, by hiring um, Tom Burrell and Burrell Communications, a black advertising firm out of Chicago, um, created the kind of aesthetic and rhetorical template for how you make a product black that isn't necessarily black. So it's not like Afro Sheen doing those commercials where they have someone play Frederick Douglass and Frederick Douglass is like, you want to get your natural together. It's like, who thought of that? Um, But McDonald's knows that um, with the right beat and the right models and the right backup singers, a burger becomes black. And so that advertising archive is so rich because It isn't just about coming into a McDonald's and eating something. It's about capturing the complexity of Black consumer behavior motivations and questions that had long plagued Black people when you think about dining, when you think about um, Jim Crow, when you think about the Green Book, when you think about all of the terror that was embedded in the experience of leaving your home and then... Mm -hmm the idea of going to a place that's unfamiliar, McDonald's, I think, captures some of that in some of these ads that do not age well. And when the black franchise owners um, who were real leaders in getting black advertising firms and market research firms involved um, McDonald's really saw the value in it and they allowed franchise owners to be creative in their own approach. And so what you start to see in the seventies and eighties is a lot of black franchise owners are commissioning black history month um, Mm -hmm. ephemera. They are creating booklets that you can get in the store. They're paying for the Martin Luther King um, holiday tribute video, and I talk about the ways that the King holiday was incredibly controversial and people were not lining up behind it. And McDonald's and Coca-Cola were the two corporations that were like, listen, this is where our money is made. We're going to make this a thing. And the black franchise owners, um, through their own local efforts, really enhance the idea that the King holiday is a good thing. Um, and they're underwriting you know, gospel music and basketball and double Dutch. And in Mm -hmm. doing this, I I really, really, really believe that what McDonald's is showing is that people, black people are patronizing their businesses, not because they necessarily have good food products. I talk about how the early chicken sandwich, like it just did not really (laughs) resonate, right? But what they Mm -hmm. do really well is suggest that we are creating an environment that is responsive, And very much inspired by black cultural forms that people take seriously and value. And, you know, when I was a kid, I talk about this all the time. um, Seeing black people on TV was a really big deal. Mm -hmm. Like they just it just was. And some of the kind of golden age of black McDonald's commercials is in that Cosby area. Um, era in the different world era, they're like drawing upon those representations for their commercials. And it was like a really big deal. And I think that anytime we believe that we're smarter than advertising and advertisers or the market, or we're too, you know, we're too smart, or we're too woke, or we're too whatever, to fall victim to them, they will find a way to like get us where we <laughs> live. And I think I think that McDonald's was very effective in doing that. And I think that there was a whole class of black creatives who were able to build their portfolios and their experiences doing this, again, active translation.
1: Right. And I wonder um, how how you're thinking about because you even just mentioned uh, sort of when you were a kid, it was a big deal to see uh, these advertisements and and the way that the campaigns are. Um, getting involved with like the all American or with a double Dutch Um, uh, to what extent was it specifically positioned for youth and young people or teenagers um, as opposed to like an older generation that would have, you know, that would have seen the civil rights movement. um, But, you know, they're, they're like more age. That's a
2: really (laughs) good, that's a really good point. Um, So What made McDonald's McDonald's in the 1950s is that it realized fast food had kind of um, a negative connotation in the 30s and 40s because it was food that people ate late at night after drinking too much. It was um, in the downtown core. It was for workers. It wasn't considered something family friendly. And when the McDonald's brothers opened in San Bernardino, a lot of their clientele were teenagers and they were kind of tired of like, young people, you know, just, just being young people in their space. And so they re um, they reconfigured McDonald's to be a family friendly place. And what they realize is that you market towards children that Mm. adults liked it well enough and thought it was novel that it was so cheap, but you get kids to just like annoy the hell out of their parents. And then they take them to (laughs) McDonald's and you know, with the introduction of the happy meal and Ronald McDonald and McDonald toys, all of that, it's a place for kids. And what they discovered when um, McDonald's was expanding in Black neighborhoods is that the adults were a little lukewarm on the food quality, but that it was an easy, cheap place for you to feed yourself and your family. Um, And then it was such a good source of cheap fuel for workers that um, they continued in that vein of marketing toward youth, Um, Mm -hmm. But not just this is attractive to kids because there's kids stuff, but this is attractive to Black families because there's something for everyone. And if we think about all of the rhetoric about the broken Black family, um, there was a way that Black advertisers responded to that. And I think I call it in the book uh, Moynihan Logics that you show a lot of Black families, you show togetherness. Um, You show aspirational kind of middle-class ideas about um, gender. You do all of those things in order to make people feel respected and seen. And so that was also really important in you market to kids and you market to this idea of family and you try to create products that maybe adults will enjoy. But when you get children not only attracted to a product, but that you create nostalgia around it. And so Mm -hmm. many adults I know are like, um, you know, I read your book and I realized I hadn't had McDonald's in a while, but it reminded me of these incredible moments of my youth. So I went and got a Big Mac, right? Um, (sighs) Because there's these associations and, you know, nostalgia and cultural kind of pride or cultural associations, you get those two things, right. And you can have a consumer for life, because I know a number of people who are excited about their kids experiencing McDonald's the way they did as kids.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. The idea that there's like a, yeah, like a visceral kind of emotion that you can associate um, with the symbol of the two arches or, yeah, um, I mean, I
2: don't, you know, I think things are a little bit different now because the category of fast casual has complicated um, people's mm -hmm. relationship to fast food. And so, I also know a number of people who are like, Oh my God, my kids never eat McDonald's. Right. Because I think if you're a person of a certain class and education background, that's considered bad. And this is how we've gotten to the point where it's like McDonald's are for poor people. Um, But then they'll say stuff like, you know, but my kids, we go to Starbucks or Panera. I'm like, that stuff is not good for you to eat as well. (laughs) Like if you really want to do judgy nutritional, you know, BS, like I think that stuff has a lot of sodium and sugar as well, but it has a certain kind of class index. And so my kids like Chipotle um, rings different than my kids like Taco Bell. We go there all the time. And so um, all of this is to say, you know, I grew up before that time and um, fast casual was many, you know, years away. And I went to the Paley archive in uh, New York to look at old McDonald's commercials. And I was like shook. I was like on the verge of tears. Every single of those commercials reminded me so much of my childhood mm-hmm. and there was so much poignancy embedded in it. I was like, man, these advertisers are good because they got me. They got me good. <laughs> they got me then <laughs> and they were getting me that day because this is a, this is a set of experiences that, um, are made available and they, they stick.
1: Right. And with that, do you think that speaking of commercials and, um, the ways that we're so, we, we create meaning, uh, like personal meaning from them. Um, do you think that it would be fair to say that the fast food boom and the advertising and marketing that, really came out at this moment assisted with the commodification or the corporate commodification of black culture that we see today
2: I think that um, it it provided a script and it mm. proved that if you follow the script that you will that you will like earn lots of profits because it's not just about this kind of faux sense of connection belonging. It's also about the gutting of communities, right? And the continual starving of communities. And so Mm -hmm. McDonald's being special only works not because of its product, but because of the conditions in which McDonald's has to be special. So if you have very little disposable income, and the special thing that you can afford for your children, your family is going to McDonald's, McDonald's becomes special. Um, if, mm-hmm. you know, in the case of one of the managers that I interviewed, you know, she says, look, we're one of the few people, few places in this area that if a person has a record, they can come, I'll give them a second chance. So if you are in um, a family and community where you see people um, are, you know, Out of a carceral space, and they need a job, and this is a place that will, you know, not say anything or will not necessarily reject you out of out of hand because you say, "Yes, I have this um, conviction record." Right? Then it is a special Mm -hmm. place. Um, You know, if you went to an HBCU and uh, you're part of marching band and you got your start because of the McDonald's marching band program, it is now a Mm -hmm. special place. And so, I think that um, one of the ways that this works is that you convince people that a place is special because it's connected and because it sees you and recognizes you and that is what is you know reflected in the advertisement when what's actually happening is that a place is special to you because the the you know entity that is responsible for your care which is the state um, has determined that you are not to be cared for and a corporation will pull will fill in that gap to the best of, you know, kind of their desire. And here we have um, a moment where we have this horrible pandemic and, you know, we're saluting all of the private businesses that are staying open right. and endangering their workers. Like what, what are we talking mm-hmm. about?
1: It's twisted. Um, I want to circle, I want to go back to a, something that you said in uh, a previous response about the sort of like the moral um, uh, moral indictments that have been levied against uh, Black food, I mean, black, uh, black communities by the health food, mm-hmm. like health food movement kind mm-hmm. of. And I, you briefly mentioned this group in, in the book. And I just wonder if you could speak more about um, the relationship between the health food movement, but then also uh, the danger that those moral indictments have
2: yeah. So when I was in graduate school and I was working on my, um, dissertation, um, you know, I, when you're working on dissertation, you find 900 interests that you didn't know have, you had have before because <laughs> you don't want to yes. work on your dissertation. And, um, the movie Supersize Me had come out and, um, it had talked about the lawsuit where, um, you know, two young people had sued McDonald's because, you know, they had eaten it almost every day and they had some health consequences and, you know, the story got reduced to like, oh, lack of personal responsibility. And, you know, people know that you're not supposed to eat burgers every day, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, God, this is so uninteresting. Um, because the more and more I looked at people who were framing access to, you know, nutritional, um, nutritionally rich foods and, you know, the community garden crowd, um, they just had no analysis of race or capitalism or even worse. Mm -hmm. um, They loved indulging in the kind of racist uh, pylons about personal responsibility um, by, you know, by being so just shocked and appalled that, you know, people fed their children fast food. And it, Mm -hmm. it was all kind of under this fantasy that if people knew about kale, then my God, they would stop eating French fries. And I was (laughs) like, what are you talking about? Right? Like, our relationships are so much more complex. And I guess my irritation about this approach is that um, the context in which we consume food and how these choices are configured in our communities became secondary to the deep desire to indict people about their choices. And Mm -hmm. I'm a firm believer that fast food is sometimes the smartest and most rational choice for people. And Mm -hmm. that if you are able to get a calorie dense um, carbohydrate, you know, um, filled meal for $5, you're being pretty smart because you've got to go to your second job or you fill up your kids on this because they may not get a substantial meal until their school breakfast. You are actually operating under some really smart ways of survival and that Mm -hmm. gets reduced or that gets, you know, ridiculed or judged. And, you know, when I'm, when I used to be on the road with this book before recent events, You know, someone would say, I work for a community food group and we try to teach people to eat X, Y, and Z. And my first question is, do you know if there's a steady source of electricity in the household in which you're providing fresh foods? Can people Mm -hmm. make their light bill to keep their refrigerator going? Is there a refrigerator in the home? You know, both of us are from Chicago. After a really cold winter, if you're behind on your gas bill, they won't shut Mm -hmm. it off. But once the temperature is at a certain point, they will. So if a person doesn't have, um, you know, uh, gas for heating or cooking, what are they doing with all this food that you're teaching them to prepare? And so, you know, you can't have one without the other. And so I was just perplexed. I went to an event in um, Denver, Colorado, and it was like a convening of um, leaders from all over Um, the US and from France. It was like an exchange. And we went to this restaurant that was like all natural something or other. Um, We had this beautiful meal in front of us. And I think the head of Chipotle came, the founder of Chipotle. And someone was kind of giving a lecture about like, I don't know why in America we have all these convenience foods. And I, you know, people will like feed their kids McDonald's and I just can't believe it. And I was like, I can believe all of it. It's called slavery and it's called Jim Mm -hmm. Crow and it's called racial capitalism. Like, are you kidding me with this? And Mm -hmm. this is a completely acceptable way of talking about, you know, the crisis of, you know, hunger and healthcare in America. And I'm like, this is real racist, real fast. And so Mm -hmm. I think um, moments like that just really motivated me to say, okay, can I write a book about the origins of these terms that get bandied about, like food desert or health disparity or food apartheid, mm-hmm. um, by not fixating on the food and fixating on um, the, what I think is the real problem, which is capitalism?
1: Right. Yeah. And we need to be asking those questions around around the choices. Like why 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 are these the only choices in the neighborhood? All these all these questions that you just said. Um, is there heat? Um, next, I want to discuss fair share and the ways that inequalities, uh, racial disparities among franchisees, becomes a new terrain of struggle for organizations like the NAACP. Um, and the question that you presented in your book, which I think is great, it's what does racial progress look like for franchise owners? Mm-hmm.
2: You know, I I think it's really difficult for us to appreciate the economic like the economic pressures of idealism because we try to mm-hmm. imagine them as separate. And I think that um, it's been fantastic. Mm-hmm that there's a number of scholars who are looking at movement history through perspective of who writes the checks, right? Who pays for all the buses to go to the March on yeah. Washington? And like, someone's got to make sandwiches. Did that person get paid? How much is, you know, a loaf of bread costing, um, you know, SNCC when they have to go to Mississippi and create an entire infrastructure, right? Um, and so when we think about the economics of the movement, We have to think about how groups sustain themselves. And what I found in my research was that, you know, organizations like the NAACP, they are really stripped by the 1970s. They are confronted with a series of lawsuits um, by the very entities that they were trying to desegregate um, and protest against. Um, There is a real skepticism about their approach. And so there's a lack of membership. People are shifting in their, their feelings about this group. And they see an opening, um, a real opening in doing these negotiations with corporations that find themselves at the center of racial controversy. And so whether it's Coors Brewing Company, because of the comments of Adolf Coors, um, whether it's McDonald's, because there's concern among Black franchise owners that they are not allowed to progress in the system, in the NAACP Operation Push, the National Action Network, they find a space, right, to be relevant and to do, again, that kind of translation and negotiation work. Um, But I think what I really was struck um, by in talking to Black franchise owners and researching these moments of tension among Black franchise owners and McDonald's corporate um, tensions that exist today is like, what does progress really mean within a structure of, black capitalism or black Mm -hmm. opportunity or black enterprise, whatever you want to call it. And um, I was coming back from Chicago for a book event and I found myself, I kind of like burst into tears. I think I was very exhausted. I was exhausted. Mm -hmm. Right. And I thought to myself, Oh, wait a second. Here I am writing this book and talking about the ways that under capitalism, um, black progress will always be truncated, right, by racial capitalism. And so that you can be a black millionaire within the system of McDonald's, be grateful for the economic opportunities and be incredibly generous and benevolent in your philanthropy, and still be very steeped in the awareness that if you were white, you would be a black multimillionaire. And I never Mm -hmm. set out to write a book that was like, deeply empathetic to millionaires. And at the same time, I was fully aware of what that felt like of knowing that you are doing well, that you are doing better than others and understanding the ways that racism has fundamentally um, flattened the possibility, right? This this horizon that you really, um, even if you're critical of, and I think about it in terms of being an academic, right? I'm incredibly successful um, in terms of academia. And I also know that because of race and because of sex, there are things that are always clipped and I'm incredibly critical of that entire system and I find it exhausting Mm -hmm. and it causes me to cry on planes sometimes. Um, because I have more, I have more in common with the capitalists that I critique than sometimes I want to admit.
1: Absolutely. I mean, yes, I understand. Um, uh what so what um what change what changes in the 1990s um this is a moment when black franchisees become um like really legitimate i mean like they're they're perceived as legitimate and viable solutions for black communities and so what how would you describe i guess that period um yeah, so we like, talked about. Uh, sorry, I was just thinking about what we talked about earlier is just that uh, the question of like the success of black capitalism.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's funny. So like the black capitalism that is represented by these efforts where, you know, a small mom and pop setup um, gets a small federal loan and you try to create Soul Brother dishwashing liquid. And people, you know, say, oh, gosh, that was so idealistic and that didn't work. Um, you know, someone trying to create their own small scale manufacturing. Or you look at Seoul City, North Carolina, um, you know, which uh, Floyd McKissick was trying to create with federal grants for this kind of Black sustainable, um, you know, town, and it didn't work. And so people laugh off these ideas. But actually, Black capitalism was very successful. It was so successful that it became this unmarked way of thinking about Mm -hmm. what black people need. So it's economic empowerment, our own businesses, our very own, um, becomes a kind of rhetoric that gets um, taken away from the context of the failed projects of black capitalism. And then it just becomes Mm -hmm. common sense. And so you start to see um, the valorization of um, Greenwood in Tulsa, Oklahoma, Um, you start black wall street becomes this really kind of seductive and provocative way of like trying to imagine the future. You have brands, um, like, um, uh, what's the brand that, uh, P, uh, Puff Daddy had back in the day, like in Sean, John, right. You have um, the valorization (laughs) of, you know, Beyonce Beyonce and Jay-Z. I know (laughs) kids ask your parents, um, you know, you have the valorization of black business people, right. And everyone's reading black enterprise. Um, And there's just kind of, that becomes the kind of common sense of of what we do in terms of fast food, fast food um, is about expands because it is considered this very um, profitable model that creates black millionaires. And even if it's not franchise ownership, it's the ability to work within the corporate structures in things like diversity inclusion um, on the supplier side um, you know black attorneys black accountants they get hired by a lot of these corporations and so it becomes this place where like oh everyone is doing well but its expansion is predicated on a lot of um, black and and brown workers who are not getting a living wage who are not getting health care who are not you know um, able to organize and so it's this so you know by the 1990s it just becomes a shorthand way of solving problems and it's called economic empowerment it's called you know revitalizing black communities but the revitalization is often funneled through this idea that it's fast food franchises and it's the introduction of low wage jobs it gets tethered into the um w- welfare to work reform ways right people have to go to work And what jobs are available? It's jobs in these types of um, outfits.
1: Right. Um, And the book uh, begins with an image of Ferguson and it ends with the fight for 15. Um, I was, I'm wondering if we could perhaps discuss how we should think about contemporary social movements and, and corporate, power, um, and, and, and black and black capitalism, really, especially since, you know, we're in this moment, we're in this pandemic, it's disproportionately affected black and indigenous communities. And, and we're witnessing uprisings stemming from more instances of white vigilante violence and police murders. So how to think about yeah, kind of like the contemporary moment. And I think it's important that you decided to start your book off with, with these movements, um, that are happening and you, and you continue to be in dialogue with the current moment. Um, how should we think about that?
2: Well, I mean, all I can say is just like, brace yourself for the bad ideas. Um, COVID Mm -hmm. is classic, you know, um, disaster capitalism set up. And I really appreciate people like Younga Taylor and um, Naomi Klein, you know, sounding the alarm because COVID capitalism is already, um, you know, showing itself. And with the, you know, evisceration of community resources of, you know, local groups, the bad ideas are just, you know, they're just getting started and they're going to ramp up because um, when we imagine that the private sector could ever work on behalf of um, mediating these problems, then we've, we've conceded not only our power as people, but we've already decided that our imagination doesn't matter. And so, um, you know, I start with Ferguson because... A lot of commentators on the uprising in Ferguson talked about the fact that the McDonald's was able to stay open during the unrest and that McDonald's is franchised by an African American and it was front and center because chaos brought McDonald's into communities and chaos sustains it. I talk about the mm-hmm. Los Angeles uprising and McDonald's being so proud that it claimed that you know none of its restaurants were hit during the unrest and it's like well unrest brought us here and we are um we thrive in unrest right like the fast food industry is doing really really well um you know under covid because it thrives in moments in which people um have their choices constrained and it's able mm-hmm. to kind of sustain disruption because it consolidates its resources and power in a certain way and so All of this is to say that um, I don't know if I will ever see the collapse of private industry or private business. Um, And I don't know if I have a beef with someone who wants, uh, that pun was not intended, but a beef with someone who wants a burger and fries. (laughs) Burgers and fries are delicious to me. But I am concerned when the sale of burgers and fries um, is so intricately locked with how people can have choices and live their lives. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, all I can say is that um, I just want people to read this book and just be really vigilant about the language and ideas that they use when they assess people's choices, um, to understand that history is our greatest tool in any kind of activist moment and in moment Mm -hmm. of struggle. And that when we look at the landscape of where we find solutions, that we have a long history of seeing that the market provides zero solutions <laughs> to substantive problems of justice and that we just mm-hmm. ignore it altogether because it can do nothing for us. Um, I, I I just think that th- if there's anything to say about this movement and this moment um, that COVID has delivered is that I see every day um, the suffering that it has exposed um, is helping some people who perhaps were skeptical of critiques of capitalism awaken to um, its deep, deep failures and Mm -hmm. hopefully will be inspired to start thinking about different ways that we care for each other instead of um, feeling that our default position is to bargain or beg um, the market to um, value human life.
1: I could not agree more with all of that. Um, I think franchise teaches us many lessons. Some of the takeaways I, I had was that we should be wary of black capitalism, of capitalism, <laughs> of corporate driven social justice efforts, whether as actual efforts or as like marketing. Mm-hmm. Um to be suspicious of these panaceas that supplant the state's responsibility to do reparative work and just work in disinvested communities. And to always, as you do in your book, keep our eyes on the people who are most vulnerable to the excesses of capitalism. Um, so Marsha, I've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, I wanted to ask about what projects you're working on now and how are you doing generally um,
2: I am hanging in there. you know I this book was such a labor of love and um, I don't know who the primary audience for new books is. I know everyone listens. Um, but for <laughs> if you're a graduate student and you're listening to this right now, like it you are on a journey and a process for research um, that I couldn't imagine being able to write a book like franchise when I first started kind of thinking about history as, The career that I wanted, right? It like it's Mm -hmm. such a process and such a journey, and I just I'm I'm glad that I stuck with it and I hung in. I I I I stuck with it because um, uh, when I was in graduate school and I was writing Southside Girls, everyone say, well, everyone told me like that's an interesting topic, but I don't really see the archive. And I was able to find the archive. Mm -hmm. And for franchise, a lot of people said, well, if McDonald's doesn't open they archive archived to you. Like, could you write this book? And uh, I could, because I had to rethink the frame. So much of fast food history fixates on this idea of the innovation of the founders or, you know, this transformed America, or it's very pejorative because of the ideas about food and nutrition, or it talks about the conditions of workers. All of these topics are really important But when I said, what is the black experience in America and what are the ways that like every black choice is constrained and becomes a source of sometimes creative energy and sometimes disaster, I was able to tell the story because I had to turn down um, the noise of what a book about fast food is or what a book in food studies does or what you're supposed to look at at the history of capitalism and just really tell the story that I felt like I was being driven to tell. And I'm just really glad that I, I stuck with it. Um, And I think that for other writers um, sometimes you just have to stick with it because you aren't even quite sure what you're doing until you're fully engaged in it. And um, this has just been such a joy to be able to talk to people about this. And the most gratifying part of the book tour was talking to older Black folks who told me about the first time they went to McDonald's and what a thrill it was. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was in Kansas City, this woman told me the story about how, you know, growing up, her grandmother made ice cream at home so that the kids never had to go to, um, you know, a segregated ice cream stand that had like a colored window and a white's window. Her grandmother was like, I didn't want that. And so she always made homemade ice cream. And she remembers going to a McDonald's for an ice cream and getting that. and. <laughs> I have 9 million critiques of McDonald's and their marketing and the supply chain for dairy. And I love and honor that story because that story Mm -hmm. quintessentially tells us what it's like um, to be black and to have to really engage with a marketplace that does all of these things and can be deeply meaningful in our lives.
1: I think, um, yeah I think that's right. changing changing the frame. Um, we're often presented with these barriers of, yeah, not being able to study the ways that business business is affecting black communities, which limits the way that, the ways that we study racial capitalism. So I think that this book has really opened the doors for uh, future graduate students to write more on the subject about. Uh, what's going on with racial capitalism and black communities and black business. So Marsha, I want to thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a great pleasure. pleasure. Yeah. It's been a great, great conversation. Um, So take care. I've, I've really enjoyed my time talking to you.
2: Thank you.